Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loblassingame, and I am an alcoholic and your host. I am so excited to announce my guest, Carrie Andre, today. Carrie grew up in a rural farming town of Williston, North Dakota. With alcoholism and her father's opiate use running rampant in her family, Carrie's exposure to addiction started very, very young. After a series of traumatic events, she turned to alcohol to numb her pain and found herself in a downward spiral that lasted over a decade. Three kids, numerous broken relationships, and four DUIs later, Carrie finally got the help she needed to start on her recovery journey, and she just so happened to find it with Lion Rock Recovery. She is now living a life in sobriety that she is super proud of and has the love and support of an incredible partner. She just celebrated four years clean and sober. This is a really amazing story, and uh, I can't wait for you guys to hear it. Carrie is an inspirational woman who has been through quite a lot, and uh, if you grew up in a rural town in America, this story will probably very much resonate with you. So, episode 44, let's do this. had a squatter in our house the people that were selling the house their adult son he was like 50 years old he refused to leave he's got kind of a sort of past and you know in trouble with drugs and things like that and he had nowhere to go like he actually moved out into his car but we had to go through the eviction process so my offer was cash so we were supposed to be able to like move in or close and then I had a lease on an apartment that was supposed to be two months so I thought we were going to be doing the remodel during that time But we had to go through the whole court process and get the eviction for this son who had no lease, who was paying no rent. His parents were in their 80s. It was just this crazy situation. There's squatters' rights, right? That's a thing. Yeah. Yep. And because his parents let him stay with them, technically, since I think it was more than, it's either a 24 or 48-hour window, he was just basically considered a resident even with no lease, none of the, that. So they had to go through the court process. And he, I mean, he squatted till the very end. Like it was 30 days to get it through court. Then they kicked him out. Then they gave him a week to get out. And like, it was still five days later. And so we had to keep pushing back the closing and it was a ca- cash offer. And so we thought, oh, just boom, we'd be able to get in, remodel, do everything, not have to worry about it. And these poor people in their 80s, dealing with a son with addiction issues and which like I understand. So I'm like empathizing with the poor guy. Like he's got nowhere to go. It's the middle of winter. It's 40 below. Oh my gosh. What a nightmare. (laughs) It it was. So needless to say, when we moved in, we had um, terminated our lease and didn't want to have to resign or be paying month to month or be paying double. And so we had to remodel while moving in with the three kids. And so, because of all that time spent in the eviction process. So, so yeah, it, it's been an interesting year. <laughs> so you're using all of your coping skills, basically. Well, yeah. And my kids just happen to be like me. I keep, you know, just going with the whole payback thing that, you know, your parents always say that they're going to, you're, you're going to have paybacks when you have your own children. <laughs> Well, mine are uh, four, seven, and eight, and I'm hoping that's not my 19, the equivalent of my 19, or I'm hoping it is, I guess, (laughs) because 19 was like when I went like, nope, 
enough with you parents. I'm not listening. Well, my kids have been doing that since I think they came out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mine too. Oh my gosh. Well, that's crazy. Well, I'm glad that um, you guys are, you're in the house now. No squatters. No, no. Interesting things though. Cause we knew that he had issues and it's like, we were trying to find this water line that, cause we moved the fridge. And so we wanted the water line to hook up to the ice and the water in the fridge. And it's like, so we're under the staircase or whatever. And I'm telling Michael, oh my gosh, there is a death list down here. And I start reading off names because I'm underneath the stairwell in this like little space that I can barely fit in. And he's like, what? I'm like, gosh, we should get the old annuals from that guy's like when he graduated because he's he's been in this town his whole life. I'm like, make sure everybody's okay. And so I crawl out or whatever. And Michael's just kind of looking at me and not taking it seriously. And so he crawls under to see if he can find the water line. And he's like, oh my gosh, you were serious. It's a death list. I'm like, yes, it says death list. Okay. I was like, how did you know it was a death list? No, it says death list right underneath there. And it's like this little hole that you have to climb through. Like, and it has all these names listed. I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy is so scary. So was, were you, you weren't on there though. So that's good. No, you could tell that it was, you know, like a a younger person's writing. It was kind of like scratched on there. But the worst part was, is we're right across the street from the public library. So when he moved out into his car, he literally moved across the street where he could sit in his car with his laptop and I suppose get Wi-Fi from the public library. And so we could just, we just watched him to make sure, you know, like, okay, he's still there. Oh, he moved two spots and, you know, watched our cameras and changed all the locks and stuff. Cause he didn't for a good eight months. I mean, that was his place. They must've finally told him to move on, like find a new place yeah. to park. Yeah. But yeah. It was and just like so, right there. So when you went in there, was he st- like, how did you, did you find him in there or how did that work? No, um, we had the sheriffs and his parents take care of it. We didn't sign any papers until they came over. And then we, we had our locksmith come over and change the locks because yeah. And just waited a few days before we went over and had cameras installed just in case, you know, taking precautions. Cause you just never know. So <laughs> Always interesting stories. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. And of course, it's so hard when you're in situations like that where you're in recovery and you see someone struggling with addiction, alcoholism, and you re- you have compassion for their situation, but also now they're pissing you off. <laughs> right? <laughs> so you're trying to be like, I have compassion for my fellow man, but also, could you please stop squatting in my house? Yeah, you know? exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, and to his parents, it's just like, like, oh my gosh, like to be in your 80s, retired, and oh, I can't even imagine having to draw that line. Like, I and they weren't letting him into their new house, uh, considering the situ- situation, you know, they were drawing their line. But I mean, an adult son at 50 years old, eventually you would have to. And so, for them too, I mean, just heartbreaking. <laughs> oh, and so, how long ago was that? That was just a year ago. Okay, okay, so. So yeah, that that was our house situation. So now we're we're just getting settled and kind of clearing the dust. And we knew we knew remodeling would take quite a while anyway because the housing situation where I live in Wilson, North Dakota, it's it's so overly inflated. So your options are like buying new for prices that just seem outrageous or buying something that's a little bit older and having to probably put some work into it. And that's what we chose to do because then we could get all the things we wanted, but like our house was built in 1977. So yeah, <laughs> this yeah. is a couple, couple steps up. 
Yeah. Are you from North Dakota? Yeah, I'm from Williston, North Dakota. Um, I've been here all my life. I grew up here. And then I went to different places uh, for college and just kind of for fun and moved around. And yeah, Minneapolis, um, of course, you know, doing the normal thing, follow the boyfriend to Omaha, Nebraska of all places and Anchorage, Alaska. (laughs) Was he a fisherman? Uh, no, he wasn't. He had family up there. So yeah, just all sorts of different things. Went and uh, lived with my sister uh, when she was going to college and uh, worked at a sign shop in Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is my current career right now. I do graphic design and work with vinyl and produce um, signage. So I went down there and kind of did um, almost an internship with okay. fast signs down there. And then, oh, cool. yeah, but just kind of kept coming back to Williston. Luckily, I had bought a house right out of high school when the housing market was very, very low. So I got a really big house and I got it at a good price before everything inflated because the oil boom is here in Williston. The oil boom that, you know, is uh, national headlines and stuff. We're kind of the epicenter of it. So all that oil that's coming from the United States that's not in Texas or Pennsylvania is here in Williston. So yeah, I kind of got lucky because I didn't have to um, deal with the extreme rent prices or housing prices when I came back to Williston. But, you know, the the ability to make money here and make a living is just above what the median average of, I would say, the United States is. I mean, some truck drivers, I guess what they would say is, you know, even if you just have a CDL, you can be making $120,000 a year just for driving truck or doing other things in the oil field. So I'm in a different part because I do the signage industry, but with all the businesses coming into town, I stay very busy. So oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. And uh, so where did you go to college? I went to college in Fargo, North Dakota for a year. And then I actually, after that, went to Denver, Colorado for a oh. year. Cool. Didn't do much college. I was enrolled <laughs> in college, but I decided that I wanted to go and, um, Uh, teach skiing and snowboarding. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I was kind of on permanent spring break up there teaching little kids how to ski and snowboard. And love that. And uh, how long are you clean and sober now? (laughs) Oh, geez. So it, it would have been four years on January 5th, I think is the day. So 2016. Awesome. Awesome. I'm the seventh. Yes. Christiana said that birthday week buddies. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's right after New Year's. Everything's feeling real crappy and uh, time to get sober. So what was, you grew up in an an oil town. Did Did your dad or mom work in the oil fields? Yeah. My dad's family grew up farming. That's the other industry that's really big in town. It's very, it's, it's rural North Dakota. Uh, growing up the city, Williston that I'm nearest to or town, I'm not sure. It was probably <laughs> 10, 12,000, but we lived on a farm North of town. We didn't do farming like my uh, grandparents did on my father's side, but we had like the old McDonald type farm. We, you know, goats, chickens, right, right, right. Um, all those, everything in the, the song. And um, after my dad got out of high school, he went straight into the oil field and it was boom and bust for a lot of years. So it was really good times where people are making good money and comfortable and really bad times. But we didn't know that growing up, my sisters and I, and my mom was doing sign painting with her dad, my grandpa. And so that industry that I'm in now came from that side of the family, although it's digital age now. Yeah. Back yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so are you, what are, what is your birth order with your sisters? 
I am the oldest of three girls. We are actually boom, 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 um, right in a row. Me and my middle sister are 15 months apart. And then my middle sister and my little sister are 10 months apart. Oh my so gosh. we, yeah, my mom says, because the oil field, my dad was constantly traveling. Um, during the eighties, it was kind of a slower time. She said it was the only three times he was home right. in the eighties <laughs> <laughs> would be us three. Yeah. So, oh my gosh. Oh, wow. So that is your, your mother is a, a hero uh, and that's coming from a twin mom. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of pregnancy. Yes. My sister's so, pregnant with twins right now. So oh, wow. oh, sure when are they due? Relate. They are due in August. So we're thinking sometime in July. Yeah. Awesome. So the farm was your parent, was your, you grew up on the farm. It was your dad's farm, but he also worked in the oil feeds. Like the farm didn't actually, it didn't make money for you guys. No, that wasn't the primary source of in- income. It's just kind of where we lived out in the country. Um, we went to country school, actually. It's so rural. There was country schools. I, it was Oh, what is man. a country school? A country school, like, you know, you hear about the one-room schoolhouses mm-hmm, mm-hmm. on the prairie. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's ki- kind of what it was. Um, the first school that I went to actually looked like that. And I think there was maybe four rooms in it, four teachers. And it was grades one through eight. And by first grade, I think, no, second grade, they got a newer one that was actually close to our house. So we jumped on the bus for about three minutes. The bus brought us to school and then brought us home afterwards. And that was grades one through eight. And it, they were combined classrooms, grade one, two, three, four, and so on, all the way up. So schooling, uh, really small community of friends, family, and stuff like that, mostly, you know, rural Okay. Families, so, and was it a was it a happy existence? It was a happy existence. We had really good teachers, very close friends. You know, town was only eight miles away technically, so we were in town a lot of the times. We had relatives that lived in town. My mom had really good friends that lived in town. Both sides of our family, uh, my dad's side and my mom's side, they came from um, very big families. So we had aunts and uncles um, and oh, okay. cousins. And so all of the holidays and everything like that. And well, and we all went to school together because we were fairly rural and, you know, we just grew up with this big, huge family. That's awesome. Well, it sounds awesome. I don't know if, I don't know if it was awesome, but it sounds really cool. Did you, were there examples of alcoholism in this, in this family at all? Did you, or was that, are you the only person? No, I'm, I'm definitely not the only person. Uh, We grew up around alcohol and it was absolutely completely normalized. The thing that I'm realizing as I've grown into adulthood, been other places in the world and the country and things like that. And I actually had a counselor tell me this once too. And she grew up here in this rural farming oil field community. And it's almost that the standard of normal drinking is, you know, so much higher than it is elsewhere. You know, you start reading so technical definitions of alcohol abuse and things like that, you know, any more than two drinks a day, you know, for consecutive days, you know, all those things, labels that they put on what's good and what's bad. Our bar was set so much higher. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't unusual to see any of the family members bringing a case of beer each to a family gathering. What they would drink, I don't know, because we were little and stuff like that. But I remember my first, looking back, my first instance of realizing that my dad had a problem, which he's an alcoholic and a drug addict, has been his whole life, self-admittedly. He said, you know, the first drink that he ever took, he knew instantly that he was different. 
And growing up, I don't feel like we saw a whole lot of that from my dad. He was constantly gone and my mom hid it from us. I mean, that was, that was her job, um, was to take care of us and hide his addiction. And so now we know as adults and they since got divorced and things like that. And it was addiction that broke them apart. Um, but going back to my first instance of really realizing that that it was a problem for some people drinking. I remember my dad coming home and my parents yelling and my dad just basically collapsing on the floor like Indian style and me sitting on his lap. And he was just different. And I didn't know why. And my mom was mad and sad and crying and maybe five or six years old and just sitting on his lap. And he was just talking to me and just saying, it's just like Kool-Aid you can't just have one glass. It's just like Kool-Aid. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, I'm so confused because my mom is upset and my dad is just like, la-di-da, right. you know, right. drunk and, you know, realizing he's just trying to, to tell me, you know, a cautionary tale, even at that, mm-hmm. that young. Right. Did you have feelings about Kool-Aid after that? <laughs> I didn't have feelings about Kool-Aid after that. I really, I have a lot of memories where there were incidents that I have blocked out. Um, I've remembered them after my sisters and I have started going to therapy and stuff like that. And we'll talk about stories. And, you know, my sister Brynn has forgotten this story. My sister Lindy, Lindy has forgotten this story. And we remind each other or, you know, the same with me. They're like, Carrie, you don't remember that? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I do remember that. So I feel like that that story specifically, um, I don't remember when I actually came back and it was it, I made the connection. But, you know, I, I just can vividly remember it in, in my head, the way my parents looked. So, so yeah, I definitely grew up in an alcoholic family and being the oldest, you know, I going through different treatments and therapies and things like that and trying to know, figure out why I feel the way I feel about certain things. I just, you know, I've remembered a lot more of a few instances where, you know, it wasn't such a happy life and, but for the most part, yeah, my parents just tried to make our childhood the best it was. My dad was a great father. And my mom still, she would never, never dispute that. Like his love, his work ethic, everything like that was amazing. I mean, it was very old school. You know, it was his job to take care of us, even though my mom worked and stuff like that. But she raised us kids. I mean, she tells stories about he would get off of a you know, 30, 40 hour job where he was up for hours and hours and hours. And he could just walk in the house and would could tell that she was just at her wits end, you know, with kids that age. <laughs> and he'd just be like, go. And he'd stay up for, you know, another 10 hours so that she could just have a break because he'd been gone. Yeah. So what did your dad's alcoholism look like when he was around? Like when were there was he happy fun was the or was what was it like growing up in an alcohol like what were the um characteristics that made your house aside from the drinking the alcoholic home since my mom hit a lot of it the well and actually the the drinking was a problem he had like he had a drinking problem he is an alcoholic and he can't handle it to this day but being sober from alcohol once us girls got older and, you know, we realized, you know, what being drunk was and all of those things, we just always knew that he didn't drink probably for a good 12 to 15 years out of our life. And, but we didn't know the other side of it. He was an opiate addict and he had a lot of injuries. Uh, He was in a really bad car accident back in the seventies, eighties, the the cure for that was, you know, just here, opiates, painkillers and stuff like that. And that's where he found his drug of choice, which would be opiates. And it still is to this day. 
so when we got into junior high and high school is when kind of the the jig was up. (laughs) You know, my mom kind of quit hiding it and quit acting like, oh, we have the perfect life. We have the perfect family. And well, she had to. I mean, she had kicked him out. He'd gotten sober. Then she'd let him back in. But then with the opiates, they were easier to hide. And then she'd find out he was still doing them. And and it was only, you know, even, I guess I shouldn't say he was sober for, you know, 12 to 15 years. He was sober for most of that time. He probably drank once or twice a year, but it was always awful. It was stories of, he'd come home with a wrecked truck. And it was, oh, two deer ran into my truck at the same time simultaneously. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, no. <laughs> nice try, but oh it, we don't believe you. So, so that, that's an interesting point I want to stop on. So I hear a lot of the time from people like, I don't drink very often, but when I do, trouble finds me, right? Like they, I can... I cannot drink for a year, but when I do drink, I get in trouble. And, you know, is that alcoholism? And, you know, I always talk about like, well, you have an alcohol problem if alcohol causes you problems, you know, that, that's, it's, it's pretty, that's pretty straightforward, right? But I, that's a really interesting point that you make that every time it happened, but it was only a couple times a year. So that probably made it easier for him to justify because there was distance between one, you know, problem and another. Yes, for sure. Well, and then as family members being close, you know, you empathize with a person that's feeling bad about themselves because they know that they did something wrong and they love you and you just get caught up in that, that cycle. And it's, not that we had abusive childhood, but the cycle itself can just be abusive and it's not even meant to be, but right. it is. Right, right. Because it's just emotionally such a roller coaster. Yes. And that's the, it, probably the right word for it is a roller coaster. We kind of, after my dad's first treatment that we were aware of, uh, which was grade school, it it did kind of feel like a roller coaster after that. It was just waiting for the ball to drop, waiting for the next time. And for some reason, my dad just, it seemed like he couldn't handle the pressure of certain things. And, you know, it just didn't make sense whether it was he had to go to a basketball tournament that one of us were in and he was going out of town and he knew he was going to be by himself, but he ended up drunk in a bar fight. And it was just, it was always a word like holidays and stuff like that, you know, the pressure of something, anything just <laughs> would have him on a, on a tear. So it was a roller coaster of like, oh, is this going to get ruined? Oh, you know, Pierre is not here yet. So where is he? Is something wrong? And so we lived a little bit in fear once we realized that my dad was had a problem. One thing my mom was really good at, um, despite their relationship now, is all throughout our childhood, when we found out about his addictions, she she did say he was he was sick you know she was she was angry she was disappointed but it was always taught to us that he was he was sick and now knowing what i know and being going through what i went through it's just something that i hold on to i guess and really advocate for um people to learn more about what addiction and alcoholism is and what it involves because a lot of people just think that it's purely just a choice 
and people are making bad choices and that makes them bad people or, you know, all the different, you know, stigmas attached to it. So yeah, I'm glad yeah. that my mom always had that for us, despite what, was, what she was going through. What was her relationship with drugs and alcohol like? So d- drugs never a thing for her. <laughs> she uh, hated smoking pot. I mean, we were very open when we were going into um, high school and college age. She would talk to us about it because she didn't have a problem with it. And I think she wanted us to be prepared. And, you know, she was very honest, you know, admitting she in high school or college, she had tried different things and she just hated it. And the reasons why she hated it and drinking, she always, she always drank both sides of our family did. Her brother was a very bad alcoholic. He almost died. And my grandpa actually owned a liquor store when uh, they were growing up. (laughs) And my grandparents always had a Bud Light every, every night, you know, happy hour or whatever. I think my grandpa would maybe have two max and my grandma's in the nursing home. She actually, she has Alzheimer's really bad, but she still, we still bring her a beer up every night. Somebody goes up and brings her a beer. (laughs) And, um, but it was never anything more than that, except for my uncle that we knew of. My mom always drank, her friends always drank. It was always a part of our family gatherings. And it was a part of my um, dad's side too. But as far as we knew with my mom, she didn't have a problem. She wasn't an alcoholic. It, it really was all to my dad. My dad was the alcoholic. My dad was the problem because he always caused problems when he drank. <laughs> right, right, right. And did you want to get out of the house? Or I mean, were you like, oh, when I get out of here? Or did you have dreams of the big city? Or I mean, what what did you, when you thought about growing up, what were the things that you thought? Yeah, I, I did. I graduated early from high school. When I was finishing my junior year, I realized that I only needed, for state standards, one more class to, um, well, it was actually half a credit to graduate early. And then we had a small community college in our town. So at 16, I took that half a credit, got my high school diploma, and then went a full year of college while I was taking my senior year, technical senior year at my high school. Got a full ride scholarship there because then I was a year ahead, but I still got to walk across the stage with my uh, class. Right. So when I graduated from my high school, I also graduated, I guess my, or I finished my freshman year of college. And I was out and I was out before the senior year even finished. Um, We were, I didn't drink all through high school. I probably had my first taste of alcohol at 15, 16. I think my boyfriend at the time, he was, you know, of course had the boyfriend all through high school. We were going to get married. We were going to do the things. We were going to live the life. And um, he was well aware of alcoholism and I think he's been off and on in recovery actually um since I, I we don't have a relationship now but I've heard and stuff like that so but we got busted basically our first time me feeling drunk it, off of like two wine coolers you know the gross icky wine coolers but it's just like oh okay so I'm not gonna do that but I still want to go with my friends and so I was kind of I think I even had the nickname Gatorade Girl because I was always driving. I was always at all the parties. I was never drinking. And so I was I was the safety net for everybody. And it it never bothered me. But then senior year, it was like, okay, well, I've technically graduated high school, graduated early. School was never hard. And so those last few months of senior year, I mean, it was it went from zero to hundred miles an hour. And Small what do you town. think changed? What do you, what do you, th- what 
have you gone back? Like, did something happen? Were you, were you just anticipatory? What do you think changed in that time? Well, in that time, I think it was just, I, I had put so much stress on doing the right thing. I had always done the right thing, got good grades, done with sports, did what my parents wanted me to, always listened, didn't really break curfew. And it was just like, okay, now it's my turn to have fun with my friends. And we had older friends too. And so it uh, it was just like, oh, now we're all going to college and we're all splitting up. So it was all summer long and all the way to college. And at that point, it was just, you know, I was putting my foot down. <laughs> the summer before I left for college, so I would have been 17. I mean, I don't even know if there was a night that I can remember that we didn't drink. And I mean, it was keg parties and I mean, 30 packs piled as high as the ceiling and yeah, that's just, it's what we did. And we did it with everything. It's like going to the lake. Okay, fill up the cooler and booze cruising. It's crazy. I was telling my my cousin's wife, she grew up in Alaska in Sitka on a small island. And my cousin and I were talking one night at dinner about like booze cruising and going out to the lake and bonfires and drinking and driving and things like that. And she I'm still astonished that it's so shocking because to us, it was so, so normal, but she's like, I have to stop you guys. You guys are just making me nervous. And I, I can see you. You're sitting right here, right in front of me. You're fine. But like, do you guys realize this was, this is not normal. Like people don't grow up doing those kind of things. And we're like, but everybody did. We grabbed a case of beer and all of our friends and we drank till we couldn't see and we drove home. <laughs> right. Right. And it is insane now thinking back about it, you know, all the different times that we could have been hurt, injured, but it was absolutely the normal thing to do here. It was, you know, just the way that people had fun. Do you think that that, I dated a guy who grew up in a small town and his story, you know, in Massachusetts and his stories are the same. It was kind of a rural town. And I wonder how much of rural America, this is the story for the teenage, you know, growing up experience. And do you have perspective on that? Like, do you think, was there anyone where it could have been any different to have, like, other than someone who just sat at home? I mean, was there anything else to do? No, there wasn't a lot to do. And I, I think too, you know, when you say dreams about getting out and doing other things, a lot of us all did go to bigger schools. But it's funny because a lot of us just went in groups and then we didn't branch out. And, you know, my specific friend group, a few years younger, a few years older, we all seem to have had the same experience with high school and college. But yeah, I mean, it, it really was the thing to do and dragging Maine and all of those things. Um, I, my parents tell stories about doing the same things that we did when we were in high school, when they were in high school. And a counselor did tell me that it is you know, it's, it is very common, um, higher instances of alcoholism and stuff in the rural com- communities. Um, the counselor I was speaking of that, uh, was from here and stuff. And she said, no, it, it isn't, it isn't abnormal for this type of community, but it is abnormal, you know, elsewhere. And so, but we didn't, we didn't have a lot of other options than, you know, say clubs or, I mean, we had the bowling alley, but we always got drunk before we went to the bowling alley. We would sneak beer into the movie theater and it probably wasn't everybody, but most of the friend groups that I hung around with were, and I wasn't stuck with just some like outside friend group. I was, I was in sports. So I was friends with the the people that did sports 
you know, there was the potheads. That was a group, of course, in high school. And I was friends with those people. And then there was the partiers. And, you know, it it was just everybody was kind of friends because we were a small enough town. So but I don't remember people not doing it. I remember I didn't do it, but I probably also wasn't paying attention. Right. So. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> and what did you think an alcoholic was? Well, the only example I really had was, well, I had two examples, my uncle, and we had heard stories about him and he just drank so much alcohol that he almost died. So then he quit. No really reasonings necessarily why. So it was just, he's an alcoholic. And then there was my dad who, he wasn't that bad in my eyes, probably growing up because it was intermittent. It was, you know, maybe once a year where it'd be a big blowout, but it definitely alcoholism wasn't how much you drank it for me it was what happened when you drank hmm. and which is unusual usually people associate it the other way around yeah no not for us none of us kids were alcoholics or going down that path even though you know it's you know we had week long parties where we had to have 15 kegs that whole week <laughs> between not a big group of us either right right so so then you go off to college and you know, have a whole different, you go off to a couple colleges, have a whole different experience. When do things start to kind of take a turn for you or or how does, how did you go from that normal kind of what everyone else was doing to, you know, this is weird, like this isn't normal or maybe this is problematic? I probably didn't until I was about 26. I went off to college and we continued to drink that way everywhere I went to college, except for Colorado, I had friends. And so we just did the same thing. I mean, and I didn't go very far with school. I mean, almost a straight A student and all the way through high school. And it was, I just gave it up to party and be with my friends. That That's all I really cared about was just doing my own thing, really not doing anything. And I ended up moving back to Williston after my first year of college. And had completely failed out. Just not because I wasn't smart enough to make it, but because I didn't go. Our house was party central. I didn't live in the dorms. I was paying for it myself. So, which in hindsight, it's like, I would think if I'm paying that much money that I would have wanted to make it worth my while, but no, I didn't. And um, I came back and I moved in with a friend from high school who was about a year younger than me. And we continued to party. And then somehow at one party, cocaine got introduced. And so that was probably a week-long experience off and on of partying and cocaine being around. And then some of the friends, once all the cocaine ran out, continued, and then meth came into the picture. And little did I know that it had been going on and through, I think, my apartment and the next-door neighbors that they were all doing meth, dealing meth, things like that. Well, I come home one drunk night and make friends <laughs> with my friends. And all of a sudden they're accepting that, oh, you can do a little meth too. Mm-hmm. You know, they, this is in Williston. Yeah. Yeah. They'd been so nicely hiding it from me because I was only a drinker and they didn't want to get right. me in trouble. And <laughs> Right. Right. Yeah. So the next three, four months of that was experimentation with, with that life, with a whole different group of people. And isolation with that group of people because, you know, to me, that was just such a bad drug. You know, that was just 
just horrible, but it was fun. And we were having fun doing it. And I didn't really realize, you know, on the food chain, I guess they were on the high end (laughs) of the food chain, (laughs) not the best people to just like jump in with, like, if you're going to get in trouble right away, that's where I would have done it. And it could have easily ended up in probably prison had I stayed in that, but my parents figured out what we were doing. And so they said, we're either going to commit you or um, you can go to treatment on your own because after four months, they wanted you to, you were bad enough that you had to go to treatment. Well, I probably, they felt that you were, yeah, they they didn't have any experience. I don't think with those type of drugs, you know, things were still really differentiated between alcohol is not really a bad thing because that's legal. Everybody does it, you know, they'd experimented with cocaine in college, but that's just something you do every once in a while, you know, but meth and the, you know, crackheads per se in town, you know, are those scary people that don't have teeth and, you know, steal things and it's the dirty drug. And so they were just scared that, you know, and they'd heard all the stuff probably at that point where it was, you know, the, the ads about meth, even once is too much and you're addicted. Right, 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 right. So, and I was completely opposite of what I used to be, at least drinking alcohol and being in college, it was like, oh, okay, the kids are going out, they're in college, they're having drinks, that's normal. But doing meth was something completely different. And so it was, it was get off of this and do it now. And so I said, okay, you know, I'll go. I mean, not with a lot of protests. I mean, my mom, I was so awful to her back then. It was like anything that ever had bothered me in my life, I took it out on her. I mean, I was a raging capital B word from hell. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, also meth doesn't exactly make you the nicest person on the planet. My experience, at least it doesn't help anger towards mom. No, no, it didn't. (laughs) And I just wanted to be an adult. You know, it was, it was my life. I have my own apartment. I can do what I want. I don't have to go to college. You know, just the, the child temper tantrum that I can look back and see now. And so and even my dad, you know, he just had said, you know, I've been down these roads with drugs and he had done everything in his lifetime. And so I went and got sober for, for two weeks. And, you know, when I was telling my story in treatment there, I didn't have any withdrawal symptoms, really nothing physically that was going on with me, but I, you know, I was 19 at the time and hadn't done it very often. It was just intermittent for those few months. And, um, Anyway, so telling my story and stuff like that, I, d- I don't know if it was intentional, but I was trying to spin spin everything away from me being a, a meth addict. So I would tell them about my drinking stories, you know, in group and stuff like that. And at one point, the counselor, the counselor stopped me and was like, well, I'm not so concerned that you're addicted to meth. It doesn't seem like that's your drug of choice. But have you ever thought that you might be an alcoholic? Have you ever thought that sharing a 12 pack and a liter of Captain Morgan straight for your night of drinking with one other friend is a little much. And it's like, Oh no, no. I mean, that's a, that's a daily thing. And then we get up and we go do our stuff like a bunch of complete functioning alcoholics. And so, so yeah, I, I was like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm cured. They said, I'm not a meth addict. Great. And so I called up, actually my drug dealer <laughs> of all people to let him know hey here's the good news turns out yep here's the good news and the smoking shack is right out this door on this street come and get me at this time 
and I bounced. I bounced right out of treatment and went home, disappeared for a couple days and, you know, just told my parents, nope, I'm done. This is what they said. And of course, of course, failing to mention, oh, yeah, that little tidbit about how they think that my drinking might be a problem, that that type of drinking, the way that we're all drinking is alcoholically and abusive. (laughs) Just didn't say anything. And um, within about a month, I was involuntarily committed to the treatment center here in town in Williston for a full 28 days. Because, of course, I went back and, you know, did meth a couple times and just drinking. You know, it was like, nope, cured, good after two weeks and right back in. So, so yeah, that was, I guess I've always considered it that one time I went to treatment, but it was (laughs) over the course of probably two months total by the time I got out of the 28 days and, you know, skipped out on that last two weeks of the first one. So, and then after that too, it was, um, yeah, it was just in my head, it was, well, I'm not addicted to math. So this isn't a problem. Right. Right. And it's, it's funny how, you know, I'm sure you've seen this. I've seen, you know, you're around long enough, you're around enough people drinking and using long enough. You see all the different types of, uh, justifications and, some of them might even be valid, but there's, it's still, you know, the, the reasons, the justifications and well, I'm not a drug addict because I didn't use needles. Okay. Um, I'm not that bad because everybody I use with is worse. I'm not that bad because I can stop. Well, can you stay stopped? Um, I'm not that, you know, or whatever it is, like whatever we figure out, you know, I've only done it this many times as opposed to, you know, which is just like this long list of ways that we kind of figure out how we're different from the people who have the problem because we so desperately don't want to be the people who have the problem, right? And anything to not be that person. And, and you know, I just, I remember going to treatment for the first time and them telling me blackouts weren't normal. Like normal drinkers didn't black out. I don't know if they told you that, but I, I vividly remember that. And I was astonished. Aston- I, I was like, there's no way that's not normal. Absolutely normal. It's like, that's a buzz. You're black, like you're blacked out. That's just like what happens when you drink. No, that's not normal. And just so many things and just feeling like I was in an alternate universe. Them telling you these things like, that that whatever XYZ behavior or whatever thought process and them telling you like normal people don't do that and me thinking, I don't believe you. That's not possible. My behavior's not that abnormal. But then after some that there's there comes a point where you do where you do go, oh Lord, my behavior is abnormal. <laughs> like like there does you do get there. But I just remember like the very early stages I mean, I think it's if you, especially if you're hanging out with the people that you talked about hanging out with, it's so easy to be like, I'm not doing what she's doing. I think I'm in good shape, you know? Yes, for sure. Well, and I always had the bar set so high because I had my dad as an example of what not to do. And then by the time I got to that point, you know, 19, 20, 21 years old, you know, I, my, relationship with my parents was open. So I started hearing more stories of the things that my dad went through and him telling me those things, you know, more of a cautionary tale, but he is always bigger, better, faster. So as well as being a cautionary tale, it was, it was almost bragging, you know, it bumped, <laughs> your, it bumped your bar. 
Yeah, yeah. really, really high because, oh, well, you know, dad's an alcoholic drug, drug addict, but I didn't do those crazy things that he got, you know, went through and things like that. And it, it was, it was just, it was crazy. And I was blackout drinking by that point in my life. And, you know, it was probably actually only really a couple years into my drinking career. And I remember that uh, the involuntary committal, my dad just had begged me and he had said, you know, just think of this as a vacation, you know, you're young. <laughs> the worst vacation. <laughs> yeah. Worst vacation ever, you know, <laughs> oh. <laughs> just 30 days away from life. It's like, and now at 36 years old and three kids in a full-time oh, job away. and all of that send stuff, me I'm away. just like, yeah, please institutionalize me. Oh, 100%. Just, like I will sleep the whole time. I will, I, I, I don't care therapy. if I gain, oh, yeah, yeah. I gain 40 pounds, eat whatever I want. Just please just take me away. But yeah, at 19, it was like, yeah, you don't know what you're talking about, dad. But he was like, and the other thing you can do is they've got a lot of tools. And then later in life, if you do decide that you actually, you know, really do have a problem when you finally start believing it, then you'll have those tools and you'll have those resources. And I look back now and it's just hilarious because it just furthered my drinking career. It furthered my own, it furthered me to enable myself because I had those tools. So as my drinking career progressed, I mean, I knew what to tell the people when I got a DUI and I had to do um, the evaluation to see if I had a drinking problem. I knew what to tell them because I knew what their standards were as far as what boxes to check of that I'm, you know, a problem drinker. Plus I had my dad as an example of how to get out of everything or hide everything. Cause I mean, he's like practically genius level IQ and in our family, the apple didn't fall far from the tree as far as that goes. But man, it was such a catalyst knowing what to say to people, knowing how to hide. And it just ignited everything in me. Like, okay, I got this. I'm a professional now, which is so dumb, but I was, I, I, became a professional at weaving my story to make it sound good. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hello, everybody. This is Ashley Loeb Game, the co-founder of Lion Rock Recovery and your host. Lion Rock Recovery has introduced a support meeting specifically for people struggling with anxiety related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Structured as an ongoing workshop, The COVID-19 Anxiety Support Meeting will teach coping skills and be a place to share and connect with others also feeling the effects of this crisis. Everyone struggling with anxiety about COVID-19 is welcome. Let me repeat that. Everyone struggling with anxiety about COVID-19 is welcome. To view the meeting schedule and join a meeting in session, visit www.lionrockrecovery.com and click on the orange banner at the top of the page. You can't miss it. Together, we will learn to feel more centered and empowered in the face of this great challenge. You said something that that we in recovery often say, which is that my drinking career, right? I don't think normal people talk about their their drinking career, right? It's not a career of the, you know, they talk about their other endeavors, but we had a drinking career, right? It was a full-time professional activity that we did, which includes, but is not limited to getting out of tricky situations, rehabs, conversations, super drunk that you have to, you know, whatever it is like, and it is a, it is a, we get expert level at it because you have to. 
if you're going to continue to do it, you either have to step it up in order to maintain that at that level, or you have to, or you have to stop because it's, there's no really great in between there. And then you at 21 had um, an experience that really escalated your drinking. Yeah. So at 21, I actually met my boyfriend who lives with me now. Um, We're raising my kids together. And he was from a town just a little bit north of town. And so I, to get out of, you know, my problems and to get out of the crosshairs of my parents, I just latched on to him and he was mine and we were in love instantly. And looking back, it's kind of funny because he was fresh off a a two-year meth addiction. And so him drinking and us partying, it was just kind of an escape for him. And it was great because he wasn't on meth. And so he, he was happy <laughs> and I had the freedom because of my financial situation. I, like I said, I had bought a house early and it was a big house and I, I wasn't living in it. So I was renting it. And so I had the cash flow to be able to just move and go up there and be with him. And um, so early in our relationship, uh, we were up there and my best friend actually got a call asking me if I was okay. And I couldn't figure out, well, what do you mean? And why, what do you mean? Am I okay? And they're like, didn't you hear about what happened um, to Carmen? And I was just like, so very confused. And, and Carmen's uh, your best friend. Carmen was your yeah, best friend. Carmen was my best friend. Uh, we grew up together going to country school and she was a grade lower than me in school. And then her mom was the cook at our school. And they were kind of a second set of parents to me and my sisters and my mom and her mom, Karen, were best friends. And so they would have coffee every morning. And at our house where the school bus was just like, you know, one mile away, the pickup stop was at our house from school. And so she was over every day and we just kind of grew up together. And her brother babysat us and me and my sisters and her and so when I get this call, I'm up in Crosby with my boyfriend and um, it's that Carmen had murdered her mother and it was completely unbelievable. So I'm calling frantically, you know, their, their home phone, nobody's picking up back in the day of actual answering machines. I can't even imagine what that recording would sound like on the answering machine. Like, Hey, it's just me. Just checking in. I heard something really strange. Please somebody call me back. You know? So you were like, that didn't happen. (laughs) Yeah. Like, what are you talking about? Like, I just was with her last weekend. We were supposed to get together, you know, this day, which didn't happen because she was in Bismarck and all these different things and, and come to find out. Yeah, it, it did happen. And so immediately I drive back to Williston with, you know, this, this boy that I'd been dating just a short amount of time and, um, it, find out it happened, went and talked for a family and everything like that. And it was just unbelievable. What had happened? And she, uh, apparently just snapped and, um, stabbed her mom. And I don't even know how many times, but apparently multiple and yeah, she murdered her mom and, what do they know? What were had that been a, a tumultuous relationship growing up, or were, were they had you did you have any idea that the two of them no had problems? None, no. I mean, she Carmen, my friend, was obviously a part of my my party group, our party group. Um, we were friends with all the same friends, and her parents 
were on her butt all the time too about getting her shit together and you know either finishing school or getting a job or you know whatever just being an adult you know because at that age we should have been doing you know adult things and not just running around partying and (laughs) was she smoking a lot of meth no I I actually never did any of that with her it and that was that was the weird part about it is I was with that girl I mean probably 75% of my days up to that point, you know, whether it was talking on the phone or, you know, in this like my whole life and I just couldn't see it. I mean, she had gotten in fights, um, which I had too, um, you know, we're country kids. <laughs> and so, I mean, and you know, her beating the crap out of some girl or something like that when they were at a party fighting, I yeah, mean, that was yeah. an unusual, that was an yeah, un- no. unusual thing. I could not think of anything that would have done that. She had this new boyfriend and they, the weekend before this happened, March 15th is when it happened and beware the Ides of March. Oh my gosh, never forget that saying ever again. But I actually, the weekend before, was supposed to be hanging out with her, but she went with this boyfriend to Bismarck, which is a town a little bit southeast of us. And when I got into jail to see her, because I said that I was her cousin, so then I got face-to-face contact (laughs) with her because I wasn't going to go through glass. I just had to see my friend and had to see, just ask her what what the hell happened. (laughs) That that, that was my personality. I wasn't... I was scared to be in the jail because more so than being around her. Yeah. And I made my mom come with me and she was just kind of huddled in the back corner and just like crying. And she just still had like all these cuts on her fingers and what I'm assuming are from knives and, you know, your hand slips. I'm, I listen to enough true crime that I, right, right, right. <laughs> nowadays, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> the blood spatter looked like it had been. Yeah, yep, exactly. And, you know, she went through this story and it was face to face of, um, you know, what happened. And supposedly they had gone to Bismarck and they had done a bunch of drugs and a bunch of pills and, she remembers coming home to her parents' house because she was living there at the time and hiding in this little kind of cellar thing that they had. And she remembers hiding there for what she said was about a day. And my memory could be a little bit off on any of these timelines, but in just thinking that she was, I think this story went something along the lines of, well, she was basically hallucinating is what she says. And she thought she was pregnant and that her mom was going to take the baby and blah, 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 and this and that. Like, just this big, huge story. And I'm going, what? And at that time, what I had heard was that there was no drugs found in her system. But, you know, looking looking back at the different timelines of when she would have been tested, when she would have done these drugs and stuff like that, you know, they metabolize out of your system different. Like PCP, you know, you yep, hear a people... Yep cutting in between the ribs because they can't breathe and they're going to make gills, yeah. you know, or, you know, crazy yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. So of course, searching for a reason, you know, I'm looking for different I mean, drugs. I'm searching something. for a reason <laughs> but yeah. this many years later. So. Yep, exactly. And so she tells this story and it, it was, it was really crazy. It was believable to me because when she goes through the story of her, her reasoning and she's crying through this whole entire thing, just like shaking, like she almost doesn't, dare get near me it's like she's almost afraid to come near me I don't and I suppose you would be almost I don't know I just wanted to grab her and hug her because I just I could never believe that that person the person that I knew the person that was my best friend would ever be uh, capable of doing that and she'd tell her story and then she'd like backtrack 
And, but then the story would be the same as she went forward and then she'd backtrack again. And then the story would be the same, you know, no matter if she backtracked and went forward in her timeline of events, it was always the same. So it seemed really believable to me that, you know, there was something that snapped in her brain, but she, uh, so I went up to visit her a few times. Her family was like my family and they were kind of really against that. I, I felt really strange going up there and almost like being there for her, but then also being so mad and angry that something like that could happen. Cause I mean, how do you, how do you deal with being friends with a murderer? And it's how, how do you at 21 years old, that would have been the year I turned 21. How, how does that even register? And when you don't fully understand why there was no, there was no reason that we could pinpoint that it happened other than a psychological snap and, I mean, I was never afraid of her. I mean, I remember being at a party on New Year's Eve at her house and I was riding my snowmobile. That's what I was driving that night. Because <laughs> you're going to go get drunk at a party and you mm-hmm. better drive your snowmobile because mm-hmm. you don't want to drive your car. Right. You know, that makes sense to me. <laughs> kind of like that saying, you know, um, well, I had to drive. I was too drunk to walk. Right. You know, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Anyway, she didn't want me to get hurt driving home. And we ended up getting in a, a fight and she pushed me and my head went through a glass window in her house. And gosh, her mom was so mad at us because we broke out the window. But she literally got in a physical fight with me because she didn't want me to drink and drive my snowmobile home because I might get hurt. And so, you know, when the cops interviewed me later and stuff like that, I never had to go to court or go on the, well, I'm sure it was on the record, but have a formal interview because I really didn't have anything bad to say that I could pinpoint, you know, as far as convicting her of this murder. And so, yeah, after that, I had a really good excuse to be escaping for for everyone. You know, my parents were empathetic that I had lost my best friend. Um, they were sad because they lost some of their best friends. You know, they lost a person that was like a daughter to them. I was losing friends over the fact that, you know, I had some contact with her after the fact and being judged because of that. And if anybody hears this, they'll probably, the people that don't know probably will judge me because I've had contact with her. And it was about caring about her as a person, but also just me not understanding how something like that could happen and wanting to find answers. I've always, I try to figure things out. I like answers. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's to me, like, I don't know, maybe, maybe other people have judgment. I have zero judgment about that. Like, you know, someone your whole life as this one person, they snap and do something that is inexplicable and that you weren't there for any of that. And you're supposed to erase a lifetime of relationship. I mean, what happens to her, you know, particularly she's, I take it she's in jail, in prison. Yep, she is. It it happened. So over the course of a year, she was in the county jail here. And then I'm not exactly sure how the agreement was reached, but I think she pled guilty in turn for a, a deal. And I think she got 15 years. So she's 13 years into a 15 year sentence. She was eligible November of 2019 for early release for good behavior. But apparently the victims, which would have been her brother, uh, her brother's wife, probably some of her aunts and uncles and cousins, um, I think they went and testified against an early release, um, you know, with getting only 15 years for murder. You know, I, I can totally see their point. I'm sure it was devastating to her because she had gotten emails from her over the course of this 13 years and stuff like that. And you know, I just told her that I don't know how to feel 
about it. I don't know if, you know, there's ever any sort of relationship that we could necessarily have. But, you know, if anything that I want out of the relationship, she said that, you know, she would talk to me and explain things to me. So maybe I could have some understanding. And I don't know how I feel about that. But I, you know, it's just some of those things that I feel like there's chapters in my life I need to close. And that's one that's never been closed. And it really did turn me into a downward spiral. And so with that excuse of, oh, I'm going through a lot and people constantly asking, you know, all of our friends, which were mutual friends, would always be asking, you know, like, what happened? Or did you hear anything? And blah, 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 blah. So a lot of my drinking from then on out was hiding. My parents at the same time um, were divorcing. My sisters were leaving for college and stuff like that. So they were getting away. So that really wasn't, that wasn't an issue with, you know, my parents getting divorced and my sisters having to see anything. Um, I was kind of always the protector and, you know, the, the little, the little mama and the little two little ducklings following along. I'm um, just a three girls. So I, I get it. Yep. And whether you have to take on that role, I think it just kind of with, just happens. with age, you just kind of do it and. So everything was kind of falling apart. And then Michael, my boyfriend at the time, you know, he was up in Crosby, which was close to my family. Um, It's just an hour away. And so we just hid together. He wasn't, he was drinking, but not using meth. Nobody really knew that at the time from him. And so we got a house and we just, he went to work and I went to work sometimes, you know, and partied. (laughs) It was an even smaller town. It was a, it was a town of about 800. So, I mean, that was the only thing to really do was go and go to the bar. That's where everybody our age was that was there. So we continued in that pattern for about five years. And as much as we, you know, loved each other and wanted to like have a life, we could say what we wanted out of life and what we were going to do, but we weren't making any positive steps towards that. You know, you just get in the, the holding pattern of like every single day doing the same exact thing, you know, go to work, come home, go to the bar, go to work, come home, go to the bar, go to work, come home, go to the bar. And that's what we did. And I knew something had to change, but I didn't know how to change it. And so we got out of that relationship because we fought a lot after we were drinking, mostly me, (laughs) you know, I was going through so much and he was my sounding board. It wasn't necessarily anything he was doing, but, you know, unresolved parental issues and, during my parents' divorce, that I think their divorce lasted two years, we learned a lot more about my dad's addiction. And our parents, with us, me and my sisters being adults, just they got to the point where they didn't shield us from anything anymore. You know, and my mom wanted to, even though she didn't have to, to justify her reasons for leaving him because he just would never be sober. And my sisters and I didn't need that, but you know, we learned a lot of stories from her about when we were little and, you know, things like oh yeah, you all three got your tonsils out. He drank all your bottles of codeine. So then I was sitting there with three kids with no medication with their tonsils ripped out and it was 70 below wind chill and your dad filled it back up with water. But that's how bad his addiction was. It was like no big deal to drink our codeine cough syrup and all of it at once. Because I mean, what kind of buzz are you going to get from codeine cough syrup? Children's codeine cough syrup. You know, so then we we had this whole new light shed on my, my dad too at the same time. And they were fighting. And then, of course, you know, my dad is trying to look at it or trying to justify himself and the love that he didn't receive from my mom because she was all shut off to their relationship. And she had made her mind up a long time ago. And it was just this back and forth of almost whose side we were on. And, you know, divorce is horrible at any age, I feel like. But as adults, it was just like mind blowing to hear all of these things that were going on in our childhood that we thought for the most part was super, super happy. 
and everybody, everybody loved each other. And it was like, there was all this hate and resentment coming up and yeah, just so many unknowns. And then dad would tell stories about mom and mom would tell stories about dad. And, you know, it's just a constant battle between them. And so then that, that really made me feel bad because I didn't know what my family was anymore. And they were always so loving growing up, even our extended family and stuff like that. And it was just, it all kind of just seemed like this big lie, this big cover up. And a lot of the covering up when we were growing up, I, I get it. My mom wanted to shelter us because children don't understand, right? you know, everything that's going on. So all that was going on. So, I mean, that was, that was horrible. That was a two-year battle. And then, you know, Michael and I are just doing the same thing. And so it, nobody really paid attention, I don't think, to what I was doing, even though I got DUIs, which I was really good at hiding those for some reason. And probably because it's rural enough out here that I, I, I mean, I just drove around. Oh, no license for two years because I blew 0.21. Shoot, that's not that bad. And I'll just drive. I just won't get caught, you know, and I never did. And so I could hide that. And in my search for some sort of like stability, I think I kind of um, turned to just finding it in other people. You know, I, then I got a new boyfriend, you know, and that would last a couple years. And then it was another boyfriend that would last a couple years. And it, the pattern just, it kept repeating. And I probably had some sort of addiction to, to love or code. It was codependent. I mean, we grew up in that coming from an alcoholic family. So, so yeah. And it was funny because it was just like, I wanted to do things for myself. I had a picture of the life that I wanted to do. I was smart enough to attain it, but I just couldn't make the steps myself to get there. So it all changed or started changing when I had my kids. And that would have been, so 2010, I found out I was pregnant with my son and I was in a relationship with my son's dad. We'd been in a relationship for over a year. We'd moved to Alaska because again, everything's going to change in right. geography yep. <laughs> when yep. your geography changes. Yeah. The whole, you're a different person. <laughs> yep, exactly. So Finally, I was sober for the first time in, gosh, 10 years. Because, yeah, I would have been, no, I was 28. So it would have been, yeah, so the first time in about 10 years, I was sober. And it wasn't a problem for me, thankfully. But, you know, I found I found new addictions like Mountain Dew, <laughs> 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 which added about 60 pounds uh. to my poor body. And, yeah, we were just up in Alaska. I was isolated. I was away from everything. And then... He was a different religion than I was, and he would find ways to isolate me even more and um, just got really controlling, trying to use his like religion against me. Like, I had a f one friend that flew over to Anchorage, and he was there, and he needed a ride, so he was just waiting at my apartment. And my boyfriend at the time, I'm six months pregnant, he, he says to me after my friend had left, like, it's completely inappropriate. You basically are cheating on me. You're an unmarried woman with an unmarried man in an apartment by yourselves. Like, what is wrong with you? And from that point on, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to get out of this. You know, there were uh, obviously other things, but I'm like, he's like literally grasping at straws to like try to control me and I'm not even doing anything wrong. And um, so I started making plans of like, you know, if I stay, what are we going to do? And if I leave, how am I going to get there? And being in Alaska away from all my family and 
pregnant, it was like, okay, what do I do? So I stayed until my son was born, tried to work everything out with him. Like he really wasn't working at the time and going to Alaska, that was the plan. He was going to go work with his brother who lived up there and I would find a job, which I did. I worked, um, I worked at a golf course. I, when I was up there, I was just like, I don't really want to do anything professional right now. I just want to chill out. I've, I've worked hard my whole life and I'm just kind of going to chill, but I need to have something to do. And it was really, really fun, but he never got a job. And this was also one of my biggest downfalls in picking a partner, how I don't see these patterns or how I didn't during that like 15 years from when I started dating until now I always fell in love with the idea of what mm-hmm. this man could be. Their potential. Yeah. And and maybe that was maybe that's a daddy issue <laughs> because my dad is so full of wasted potential. And but and that's just what it boiled down to with the father of my son. And so after my son was born, I moved back to Williston. And at that time the oil boom was going really strong. And I had told him, you know we have a son. And if you don't want to work, that's fine. You want to do daddy daycare, that's fine. But if I'm going to be the one that's working, because we obviously this child is not going to survive on love. As much as you want me to breastfeed till he's 18, so we can save money. It's just not going to work for me. So we're going home. (laughs) And I get to pick where I'm going to work if I'm going to be the breadwinner, which once we got home, he of course went back to work. Um, He still actually works for me. But my son was six months old and I finally called it quits uh, with him. And during those six months, I really wasn't drinking. I was breastfeeding off and on and stuff like that. And, you know, I feel like in a drinking career and when you finally realize that you're drinking alcoholically and you look back, it's the excuses become so much more apparent. You know, they say, well, you always have an excuse. It's like, this person died. My cat died. I had pneumonia, so I should drink myself stupid instead of taking antibiotics, you know, (laughs) anything. And um, so, yeah, I mean, during those six months, I I did have excuses to drink or I'm stressed because now I'm a new mom and I deserve to have three bottles of wine if I want to. (laughs) And he was drinking right along with me. And in his religion, that was, he was LDS Mormon. So for him, I think it was a personal problem. He was flopping, flip-flopping back and forth between what he was raised in for 40 years and what he actually was doing with his life. Because it's not like I started him on drinking. I mean, he was always did a little partying here and there. So, so you know, he was struggling personally too. And so we just parted ways. And little did I know when we parted ways, I got a going away present, which would be nine months later, my daughter. And... <laughs> So shortly after I left him and um, moved out and took my son with me, he was actually still working for us, which was fine. And so we saw each other daily. We got to raise our son, you know, side by side, but not be together. And I didn't even tell him. I think it was six or seven months along when I finally couldn't hide it anymore that I was pregnant. Oh, my gosh. His his daughter. So, yeah, that story with the priest, I'm Catholic. So when I got him baptized, he's like, well, how do you know, are you with the father? It's like, I'm married Catholic mother. Can I please baptize my children? And (laughs) like, oh, no, that one was a going away present, Mr. (laughs) Priest. (laughs) Yeah, That's a whole other story. He's like, oh, did you really just say that to me? Actually, when I had that conversation, my mom was in the room and she just looked at me like, Carrie, stop. I know you get nervous and I know you ramble, but come on. She's like, no jokes, no jokes. 
Oh my just God. like slapping her head. Yeah. Like, how could I'm like, well, it's the truth. Oh boy, that's hysterical. <laughs> yep. So, but I didn't tell him not because I didn't want him to be a part of our daughter's life. I was actually really excited because if we were going to be apart, then my kids wouldn't be alone in this. You know, they wouldn't be bouncing from house to house, you know, in the long run. I just thought that that was that that was a nice thing that they would, they could go together. They could have each other just because we screwed up as far as our relationship goes, our kids wouldn't be alone in that. So, so yeah, we were both really happy about it. And of course he went through the whole, Oh my gosh, it's not mine. You know, blah, 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 blah. The abuse of, you know, trying to be just, I don't know, make me feel bad about myself and Oh, it must just be a lie. And, you know, I guess I can see that, but at the same time, I mean, what was he going to do? Hold my hand while I was pregnant for nine months? I just didn't see any need to have to fight about what I was doing while I was pregnant again and not being apart. And I didn't want to get drawn back in. And so I had her in November. I started having contractions and I was staying with my mom because I knew that I might go into labor. And so I left her house at, oh gosh, one in the morning. And I had to pull over like five times in between the hospital having contractions and showed up at the hospital and by the next morning I had a baby and yeah, cleaned up, was walking around the hospital and the nurses were like trying to tell me your sister's in this room. I'm like, no, no, that's my room. They're like, what are you doing? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Just <laughs> Do you want to call somebody to be up here with you? Cause yeah. nobody was up there. You yeah. know, I yeah. was just always very self-sufficient. And so, yeah, then that started our, our journey with, with two kids and, um, we co-parented very well together, but we both went back to drinking and, you know, we were taking the kids every other weekend. And like I said, he was working for us. So then it was um, at my work, which is so strange, probably as far as getting sober, my desk at work is a bar, like a fully stocked bar. I think I said earlier, my grandpa owned a liquor store. Well, at our sign shop now, it's all decorated with the signs, but they're all liquor signs. And then my uncles and some of their friends and my grandpa's old friends, like they used to come down for happy hour. Well, the tradition has continued. And now they've got a bar. One of our friends died and he had this bar in his house. And so they dropped this bar off at, <laughs> at our shop. And so every day at four, they come down and watch Jeopardy and, you know, 435 have a beer or two. And so when I had my kids, that's where the pattern began again. You know, it was basically two years of not drinking and then binge drinking in between when I wasn't pregnant. And it was, I was at a, an adult now. I had my own family and so have a couple drinks after work before I had to go home with the kids. And it just went right back into it, except for it was new. I was by myself other than my kids. And, you know, I was normal drinking again because that's what everybody did. That was right, happy hour. Right. So now it looked normal. Yep. So I got back into that pattern and of course found another boy, <laughs> a boy that I'd known my whole life. And we were just gonna, we were going to make a life together. And he, he knew my kids, he knew me, he'd always loved me and got married and, you know, had another baby <laughs> and our whole dating. And then up till I got pregnant with my, my youngest daughter. I mean, it was, it was just a big party. Because then I also, I had somebody there. So I had a backup. So I could drink as much as I wanted because I had somebody else staying there. And, you know, it was two people with their eyes on the kids. And they were babies. They, they slept. That's, you know, they didn't know anything. And so I had my daughter in June of 2015. And by January of 2016 is when I got sober because it 
just in those six months from June to January, the couple times that I drank, I mean, it was, it was just awful. I don't know if something chemically changed in my body or my tolerance had just gotten so high that it went backwards. Like they say it happens to some people, but I mean, two bottles of wine is a lot, I'm sure for some people, but for me, I mean, it was face first, you know, wow. through glass windows and getting 90 st- stitches in my face. You got 90 stitches in your face? Yeah. Um, I can't so, see that at all. Yeah, I know. It was in my nose right here, right here, and then right here. And then under my eye, I'm lucky I didn't lose my eye. That was probably after a bottle of wine. I mean, I wasn't even wasted at all, but just, you know, just drinking, slipped, went through a wall, a glass plated wall. And even that didn't slow me down though. I mean, it was, oh, well, I just, I slipped and I put my yeah. hand and there was a table runner. I mean, it, even that wasn't a problem. And it, it was funny because I was staying with my mom. It happened at her house and my kids were there. So I, you know, called the ambulance myself. I like even a pillow on my face would not stop the bleeding. Like I was taking selfies of myself to try to see like if I could stop the bleeding and where the cuts in my face were. Like I didn't even know if I still had an eye on the one side and came home just zipper faced. And it's, you know, my family is calling me like, is, is enough enough is enough enough. Like we've realized you weren't that drunk, but still is enough enough, you know, and I'm all embarrassed thinking people are going to think I was wasted. And it's like, to me, I wasn't, super wasted yeah you're I like mean, i had a I bottle of wine yeah i wasn't blackout drunk and because you're comparing it to what you've normally drink or what you've drank before like and and we do that right where we compare we say like well this xyz thing happened i fell through a window but like i had only had a bottle of wine you know i used to drink or i have drank you know a, a liter before and i was fine so like it's not about we're just comparing like the intake of alcohol to you know, the situation and there, and by those rules, it's not that big of a deal. No, absolutely not. And for me too, it was like, yeah, you know, telling my sister, um, which my sister at that time, um, my little sister, she had been sober for probably three years at that point, maybe two. Um, so she had gone through her own stuff with, with drinking and really bad depression and stuff. And at that point in my life and my drinking too, it's just like from, her sober mind and a lot of my family wasn't sober. So, you know, they could, they could almost justify it too. Like, Oh, you only had a bottle of wine. You know, what the heck happened? Right, that, right. That's not like you. That's not like you. I, you, we drank seven bottles of wine between the three of us and we were all fine, you know? So, yeah, I mean, that didn't even stop me. And I just, I knew it was bad, but at the same time, not bad enough because my standards were so much higher. What made it bad enough? Like what made you make the, you know, and how did you make a decision to get? Well, I was married at the time to my husband, um, Mark, and we've since divorced, but he was over it. It was scaring him. And for him to be scared, considering, you know, he's had an up and down past with drinking, you know, but he can have two beers and quit and he's, he doesn't care. I mean, not that he doesn't drink like the rest of us and party like the rest of us in growing up where we've grown up. I was scaring him too. Uh, I was at the point where they were going to commit me. You know, I got drunk within one week, got a DUI, said I was done drinking and it was just, you know, a horrible mistake as always. And then went out a week later and ended up in the drunk tank in detox in the jail because... I didn't really understand what the cop was trying to do, even though he was just trying to tell me like, hey, it's winter, I'll give you a ride home. But it's like, 
he had to take me into detox because I wouldn't tell him where I lived. And I literally was two blocks away from my house. Oh my gosh. And so then after that, nobody knew where I was and I had my kids and I just, I couldn't do that to them anymore. The thought of them seeing some of the things that I had seen with my dad at that point, because during this whole period after my parents got divorced up until I quit drinking, my dad spiraled out of control. He went from, you know, his drug of choice um, opiates, he went to heroin because it was less money and you couldn't, you know, now they've since cracked down on prescription drugs. So I think that was just his next stepping stone. I'm not necessarily up up to date on how that all works yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for opiate addicts. But so that's what happened to him. So I saw a lot as an adult from him and having to commit him because once my mom was d- divorced, she was done. You know, she'd she'd done her job. She couldn't save him. Well, my sisters and I, even though it wasn't our job necessarily either, we took on that role. And thinking about my kids having to see what I've seen of my dad in that state, it was done. Enough is enough. And I wasn't going to be forced into anything. I wasn't going to let my parents, my husband, my friends, anybody, my sisters, I wasn't going to let them send me away for 30 days away from my kids. Like there had to be a way. So I got out of jail and they talked to me and my marriage was falling apart at the time too. Not all because of drinking. Of course, that played a role in it too. But, you know, just a different adulting things between me and my husband as far as like making money, supporting the kids, all the oh things gosh, that take just, a marriage apart. <laughs> yep. Paying bills yeah. and how we should do it and retirements. And, you know, we just couldn't come up with a a, a good schedule. And um, we just couldn't, we just couldn't come together on it. And so knowing that everything was just going to fall apart, I could read the writing on the wall. And I told my husband, I told my sisters and my mom, like, I will figure it out. I will get help. Don't commit me. Just let me do some research. I'll figure it out. And I told my husband, you know, I'll quit drinking. I don't have a problem with that, but I'm just going to tell you right now, that's not going to fix our marriage. So we'll, we'll take that out of the picture for all of you. I, I promise you guys, and I know that I can't make excuses anymore, but I can show you. I can stop drinking and I can show you that I will do what I say I'm going to do. And I was driving around and I'm, I'm one of the very few smoking unicorns left out there and smoking cigarettes. <laughs> and Googling on my phone. And I ended up in the parking lot of Walmart. And I had come across this online treatment center, which is Lion Rock. And I called and it was Bayhan. Is that how you say her name? Bayan. Yeah. Bayan. She was at the other end of the line. And I'm, you know, thinking about now kind of, it's like, I'm surprised I wasn't a sobbing mess. Maybe I was. And I just I don't. don't remember it because <laughs> I feel like I should have been. And, you know, knowing that now how it changed my life, I mean, I should have been sobbing some happy tears. Like, here it is. This is what I've been looking for. The pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Williston, the town that I was living in and still am in, doesn't have a lot of resources. You know, there's been times where there's been treatment centers there. There's been counselors here, good counseling services and stuff like that. But it, it's it's pretty hit or miss and there's not a lot of funding. And so... To find something online, because at the time in 2016, there, there wasn't anything here that I could do from my home was amazing. And so when I called, she said, I'll get right back to you. It'll probably like maybe she heard the desperation in my voice or maybe it's just standard um, within your company. But 
she told me, I'll get back to you within like two to three hours. Give me your insurance, which I had at the time. And let me see what we can do. And she called back and she's like, Oh, yep, you're in. And this is going to be that what you have to cover, but all of this. And I'm like, you're kidding. When does this start? And so then I think I started the next week and uh, continued and haven't drank since. Haven't even really thought about it. It wasn't even hard, which is really amazing after all those years that it wasn't hard for me. And I was still going to work and sitting on my bar stool and having people come in for happy hour every day at four and kick me off my my desk, my bar, aka desk, and standing there for happy hour, not drinking. And, you know, every day having to say, no, nope, I, I don't want one, you know. And it was easy to say no because I have kids. You know, I always had excuses to say no. Right, right. So, right. so it was easy to come up with with reasons. But I mean, what did you get from that experience? Like, what did you get that really changed your ability to deal with the things that you had been running from? I just finally realized, I guess, that that it was okay to have problems. You know, I know I always made my problems to myself seem really little because, you know, there's always people that have worse problems. There's always people that you know, just can't do it. You, you get through it every day. So it's okay. You're surviving. That's okay. I wasn't living, but I was surviving. And, and that was, that was just okay. I just didn't have the drive to reach, reach for more. I I don't know if I didn't think I was deserving or if there was just so much going on because of codependence issues that I distracted myself putting out all the other fires in everybody else's lives and just could completely, it took the spotlight off of me. So it's, it was a double-edged sword. And so when I finally knew there was help and any help that I had received before, I guess it was kind of always people that were like me. And the thing about Lion Rock that was so different is the people that I was connecting with were from all over the world. You know, there was people on the East coast, there was people, you know, over in Hawaii that were getting up at 4 a.m., you know, to to make these meetings that we were in, these group sessions that we were in. And they did all sorts of things, you know, the lawyers and, you know, farmers and, you know, very successful people on, you know, the, on on the paper scale, you know? Yeah, yeah. Right. And, Resume <laughs> on paper. Very yeah. You know, and it was just like, oh my gosh, you know, wow. Because everybody always told me my whole life, that I could do anything, that I could be anything, that I was so smart. I can always figure it out. And everybody always did call and rely on me, you know, from friends to family to anything. And it, it for little projects and for hard things. And I'd always figure it out. So to see that there was other people that were struggling, that were high functioning, that weren't, I don't know, in the gutter. And, you know, you do realize in the program and things like that, you know, we are all the same, but I wasn't that person. And it, it just coming to terms with, but you are, <laughs> you're that bloody person with 90 stitches in your face. You know, you're the, you're that person that face planted and has a black eye. That's, you know, <laughs> it's you, you are that person, but two things can be true at the same time. You can be that person, you can be that addict, but you can be successful and functioning and happy and have love. That was just interesting to have to see people that were not my, from, from my community that were that were doing that for me to to realize and to realize it's okay. Do you have relationships with any of those people? Um, I follow a few on Facebook, and the ones that were in 
uh, my program um, for the longest, uh, they they seem to be doing really good. There's this other girl. I doubt that she would care if I mentioned her name, but her name is Sheila. And she is on the East Coast and she's running a foundation for recovery and does a lot of work and stuff like that. And it's funny because you know, as people <laughs> in accepting people, we want to say that we don't judge. But when I first met Sheila in our program, it was, um, I was like, oh, that girl's not going to make it. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> and just like, you know, this East Side Jersey type accent knows everything, you know, and she's just beautiful. And she's just outspoken and stuff like that. And, and it's so funny, because it's like, it, she is, she's making it. And she's, you know, she's, overcome so many mountains. And it's so awesome to see that. And she's very out there. I don't tell my story. I actually had a friend Snapchat me last night and say, I heard you've been a good girl. And I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, I always kind of am. And this is one of my oldest friends that used to like, come out to my house and do my parents dishes so that I could go out and go drag Maine in town with him. Like, <laughs> we never, <laughs> because that was my chore before I got right, to right. leave. And, um, and he said, no, I heard you quit drinking. I was like, oh my gosh, like that was like four and a half years ago that I quit drinking. He's like, oh my gosh, good for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like it's not, it's not, what does your life look like today? And, and how has sobriety changed your life? Everything is still a complete <laughs> show. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But, <laughs> but that boy that uh, back in the day from Crosby um, that I dated for about five years after my marriage broke up, he actually ended up coming back to town. We, we'd always kept in touch and everything. And so he, he knew my life. I knew his life. He did go back to drugs. He's in recovery now. And um, so about a year after I filed for divorce and everything, he asked me out on a date and so we went out on a date and now we've been together for almost two years now. And by the time that we got back together, like we, we were both sober. And so we, we had really honest discussions of like not falling back into old patterns and just like getting into that point of like, oh, back when we really loved each other 10 years ago or eight years ago. And he was all right with me having three kids and him having to deal with two exes. And <laughs> so we decided to try it out. And now he didn't not know back when we first dated, we had this dog that we got and she's horrible and she's a German short hair and she's never calmed down. She's the worst one of all of our kids. Like if there was anything to prep to, of having wild kids, this dog was it. I mean, she's still to this day. She's 13 years old. She's still, she pulls out like the whole cupboard that the garbage can is in and will tip it over and somehow figure out the child safety locks and get the garbage out every single day. Oh yeah. They're really like, smart. So smart. And so throughout the years, 13 years of this dog's life, even when we were broken up, I always watched the dog. She's a hunting dog. I like to hunt. He would rather shoot a camera and like thinks she's very pretty and will shoot the camera. I shoot the birds. And um, so he, he knew my family. He knew my kids. You know, he knew my ex-husband and we'd maintained a, fr a friendship. So yeah, now we're just raising the kids together and doing recovery together. We don't, our recovery is pretty personal. We don't do a lot of things together, but we talk about it a lot. You know, where are you at and where are you at? And it wasn't something that I guess that we went through together. So I, it's kind of, we bring something to each other's sobriety in, in, in different ways. 
and so it works well for us and the it's just no no pressure i feel like i feel like we both got really lucky in sobriety in that way we don't right now and it could change we're just so comfortable in it and it's it's really nice and the kids are they're insane they're insane. I love my kids more than anything in the world. But if there was ever a hard job, it is that. Like with everything going on right now and having to consider homeschooling and being a stay-at-home mom type of thing and all of that, it's like, no, never been my dream. Never in my life been my dream. And now I'm being forced into it. And it has been it has been pretty insane. It's been um, you know, you're you're talking about the COVID the coronavirus and uh, and the pandemic that we're talking about and and kids staying home. And I have a lot of friends who are in recovery, particularly mothers, who this is testing us at a level. I mean, I'm sure that it's testing everyone. So I don't mean to say that, you know, only alcoholics, but to those of us in recovery feeling like there's an out or there's a release or they're, you know, desperately needing that. It has been really difficult for, for many people. And, you know, what's great is that you had the experience of seeking support online. So that's not new, you know, that's not a new concept to you, but I do know a lot of people, this is a, you know, it's a brand new concept to them and it, and it, there's that transition time and it, it is, it's not, you know, we're, I think that's kind of what recovery is so much of the time is like life on life's terms and suiting up and showing up to what is happening, not what I've decided I want to happen, what I've decided needs to happen, you know, all the different aspects of it is just really, because that's what I, that's what I needed alcohol for was to deal with the fact that life was not going the way that I had anticipated or planned or wanted or whatever. I needed alcohol for that. And so now I need the tools of recovery and the the, the community and the different things in order to deal with that same problem. <laughs> Turns out life still does not go exactly as I plan. This is case in point. But yeah, it's uh, it's been a wild, a wild time. Yes, it, it very very true. You know, when I had originally reached out and um I, I guess how I did that is I found the podcast and I I'm really into listening to podcasts at work and I just I am not the one to put my face on anything, especially anything having to do with hi, I'm Carrie, I'm an alcoholic. Labels just have really not been my thing. I mean, it's funny how hi, I'm Carrie, I'm an alcoholic versus, hi, I'm Carrie, I've, I've abused alcohol in my past. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it, one makes me feel a little uneasy yeah. and one makes me feel like, um, you know, oh, that's kind of okay. Well, and, so a person in long-time recovery, I'm a person in long-time recovery. That's a new one that people are using. Yes. And well, that was one of the reasons that I uh, reached out to Lion Rock. And then the more I thought about it, you know, I, I really, you know, with a lot of my codependence, a lot of my family issues and stuff, I was, I was worried about doing an interview about my story because I don't want to call out anybody specifically because there's a lot of people in my family and that are really close to me that, that could use time to work on themselves. A lot of people that I currently work with and have relationships with, and a lot of those are family members. Whose names start with B and end with <laughs> rad. <Yeah. laughs> right? And so I was worried about that because I just didn't want to 
I, I didn't want them to maybe hear this and think that I was pointing fingers at anybody because, you know, any sort of recovery, any sort of mental health issues you know, you have to a lot of times come around and accept that part of you on your own. And then I just finally, I had to get over myself for a minute. I've kind of been hiding my sobriety and embarrassed of my sobriety for so long. And it's kind of becoming a movement. And I can't say that I will ever be the face of a whole lot of things, you know, but I, I do want people to realize that there's, there's so many different ways. Lion Rock, I mean, anybody that I've seen struggling, I send them the link, you know, it's just such a resource. When I talk to my counselor and stuff like that, um, you know, there's just so many things that I found valuable from my experience. And, you know, she had to reassure me, you know, it's okay. You know, it's your story is your story and what you get out of it. And I, I did just want to share that and have people know that there are resources. And, you know, if you, if you want to hide and do it, you don't have to be that person that's on Facebook, you know, counting your days down for all your friends. It, and if that's your way, cool. Yeah. If, if that's what gives you the courage to change, or if that's what gives you the pat on the back to keep going, fine. Me, I was so embarrassed of myself that I just never wanted to let go of that control and have to break myself down to that I was that person. And I am that person. And I think everybody is really that person in one way or another, whether it's drugs, alcohol, whether they're, you know, whether they're a bad partner, whether they're a bad employee, whether they just, you know, whether they just can't get off the couch because, you know, they're, they're depressed and, you know, all those different things. And so, yeah, that's just why I just decided it was probably time because it is becoming more and more apparent and it does help people to hear other people's stories, whether or not, you know, it's, it's the little things or whether they've done humongous things. It's, it's everybody in between. It really, it really is. It's kind of like the coronavirus right now. It, it, it doesn't discriminate. Right. right. I know it doesn't discriminate. Exactly. Yeah. It's, um, it was so cool to get, to get your email and feedback about, you know, listening and, and that, that, you know, the episodes and hearing other people's stories had helped you and, and you get to do that too. You know, you get to add, add something back to the, the pot. And of course it's funny to me, it's always funny to me because people are scared to share their story. And then I'm like, okay, well, if you come on, it's a global podcast, <laughs> like it's a global podcast. So you, it's definitely alcoholic to go from zero to 60, but I support it entirely. <laughs> yes, it is. And you know, that is so much of my life. Um, I've gone back and forth. Uh, my sister that she, she writes songs and stuff and she's got a couple albums and everything. And, um, uh, she, she's the writer in the family and that's what she went into in college and everything. But we've usually let, let her stick with the writing and everything like that and the speaking and the performing and all of that. But we always laugh because in a combination of all of our stories, and then especially a lot of mine with being in Williston and dealing with my dad and having firsthand stories of still a practicing alcoholic, <laughs> not a functioning, but he's, he's sure still practicing. He's practicing so much. He's gotten really good at it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I don't know. I think we might be on the downward slide, oh, but no. yeah. But anyway, anyway, we've been just like talking about like, gosh, one of us has to write a book. And so I've, I've kind of started to do that too. And it's um, coming on here too. That was like another thing. It's like, I need to find another a community, you know, I'm following this community, but you know, you, it's one thing to watch, but you got to put in a little effort too. It's and so that's part scary of recovery. though. It is. It is. It's soup. It's, I'll tell you for me, which might sound ridiculous given 
I now tell bits and pieces of my story in like 60 episodes, but I was terrified to do this. I resisted it. And then once I agreed to it, I wasn't sure that I was going to have anything with my face on it. And then we had 25, uh, our producer, Christiana, was going to kill me. We had 25 images that we were going to use for the artwork. And there was all this debate about which one to use. And they had originally mocked up the one that we ended up using. And I was like, no, we're not doing that. I don't want my face. I don't want people to be able to search me and see this, that. And at the the 11th hour, I was like, oh, I don't care. Fine, whatever. Just use it. You know, and they scrapped like the 20 other images and just put my face on. I was like, oh, here we go. I just remember hitting like... Oh my god, and seeing it seeing it download in China and seeing it download in France and going, Oh my God, what have I done? But you know, and then I get emails from people like you who tell me that it's helped them in some way, shape, or form, and that people's stories have helped them, that Lion Rock has helped them. And I'm like, you know, whatever. Like, you know, it comes down to that, like, are you gonna judge me for getting better? Is that ultimately is that what I'm afraid of? That someone's gonna say, Wow, you did all those things and you got better. What a bad person you are. Exactly. You know, like, what do I have to do on this planet to be absolved from, you know, the crimes and 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 misgivings of my past? Right? Have I not done enough at this point? And and I I feel like I have. Yes. Well, you're uh, you guys definitely have amazing stories, and your story was amazing, and it's it's just really really fun to see a community that is so well rounded too. I mean, it's just that's one of the most important things that I need to remind myself and everybody should, you know, and the acceptance among our, our group (laughs) is beyond anything that you'll really ever experience. And yeah, it's, there's just nothing like it. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. Carrie, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it and and think that you are wonderful and look forward to your book and uh, your your story. And if um, if you ever if you when you when you finish the book, yes, please yes. please call us and and we'd love to hear more about it. We'll come talk about it. Well, if nothing nothing else, it should be uh, pretty funny. Um, I just had said something on my Facebook, my personal Facebook about the first step for homeschooling is 80s and 90s dance moves class. Mm -hmm. And if nothing else, it'll be so hilarious that we'll get an ab workout. So, you know, there you go. There you go. Nothing else. We'll, we'll fall back on that. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So, and I sure appreciate you guys taking the time to talk to me and I hope, you know, it just, it reaches whoever it needs to reach and it will, that it helps. Yeah, it absolutely will. Thank you so much. Okay, well, you have a great day. Talk soon. Okay, bye. Bye. This podcast is sponsored by Lion Rock Recovery. Lion Rock provides online substance abuse counseling where clients can get help from the privacy of their own home. They are accredited by the Joint Commission and sessions are private, affordable, and user-friendly. Call their free helpline at 800-258-6550 or visit www.lionrockrecovery.com for more information.